Today's lesson is written in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning, Conformance. It's no secret that Christianity and our faith has referred to a great race in several instances throughout Scripture or that scripture has at least referred to an athletic type of event or setting many times. This is for several reasons. One of them, of course, is that it's a tangible analogy that the audience can easily wrap their head around. Even people who are not natural athletes can imagine a race-type setting. A few quick examples of this style of reference is seen in these following verses. 1 Corinthians 9.24 Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Also in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, Ecclesiastes 9, 11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. As we know, a race has to have a few elements to take place. There has to be a setting. There has to be a place for the race to happen. Prescribed distance or time ran, and of course, a goal or finish line. So we have to ask, how many times in our lives do we actually feel like we have this all figured out in our own race? Or that we have a clear objective and path to get there that is straight as well as in sight? Or better yet, how many of us can put an accurate timestamp and how long it takes for something that we've been praying for to come to fruition. How many of us take for granted that because of God's wisdom, His word, and the work already done by Jesus Christ, that we have all we need to to run our own race, including the goal? I want to share a quick story with you about a race I took part in a while ago back in 2016. As you know, Pastor Bruce uh, talks about his uh, Train to Hunt events, which is a uh, it's an athlete-slash-hunter event where you combine the two. He invited me to take part in a race in, uh, in Colorado. It was beautiful. Uh, but at that time, uh, my age group was designated to carry a 100-pound pack up this winding mountain trail. Uh, I'm humble enough to admit that there was a couple times that I felt I might pass out before the finish line was even in sight. Thankfully, I made it, and I had a great time, despite this being the hardest thing I've ever done physically. What got me through it was the goal that I had predetermined, the community I found, and of course, my family. My goal was easy. Don't die and don't give up. Honestly, it was my first train to hunt, so my expectations of myself were pretty low. I'm proud to say that I placed fourth overall in the traditional archery division. But I'm not too proud to also say that there was only four competitors in the traditional archery division. The community is what I didn't expect, and it was a tremendous source of encouragement to achieve the goal that I had set myself. Our scripture lesson today from Hebrews reveals a great deal more than just instructions for running a race, doesn't it? It doesn't just say run the race. 
Try not to die and don't give up, which are my lofty goals. No, in fact, it reveals so much more than that. It reveals an important truth as to the source of our faith, Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend some time breaking this point down that is being made in these two verses. Starting with the cloud of witnesses. The depiction of clouds have held a significant visual meaning throughout scripture. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were shown God's presence was with them when they were guided by the pillar and the cloud. Or in other examples, a great cloud is described as covering all that is seen. The cloud is meant to be visually overwhelming. In this instance, it can be related to a crowd or a multitude of people, those who are witnessing us and our lives, both those who have gone before us to God's glory and those who have yet to come into our lives. Next we look at is to lay aside the weight and the sin which clings to us. In other translations, it says encumbrance. This means that we have to repent, ask for forgiveness, and move to seek Christ in all that we do. To set aside those sins that keep us distracted, complacent, confused, and tempted to put other things in this world before God, including ourselves. This, of course, takes discipline, spiritual discipline. Really, spiritual discipline is depending more and more on God's grace, helping us as we stumble along. This looks like reading God's word, setting aside dedicated time to study and seek God's word, and to not apply it to your life to make you a better person, but to mold our lives to its authority as a living, breathing word of God. Seeking God through prayer, laying down our own weaknesses, ones that he already knows coming to him in reference and awe for the fulfillment of our daily needs and for his faithfulness since the beginning, for guidance that his will be done, and, of course, obedience to where that may possibly lead us. It means a lifelong commitment to seek Christ in all we do, which, of course, the end goal being that the world sees more of Christ than us. More importantly and humbly, it means relying on the means of grace of sanctification as carried out by the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the lives of all believers. Obedience help us to keep our eyes on the goal, the finish line, which God has well established ahead of us and which we cling to you for hope. Now moving to verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's easy to see how Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, as he is God. But also is the only man who has lived a life that completely exemplified a faithful life. This is what the process of discipleship, of sanctification, looks to as the goal. Not for our salvation. That is only through God's power, through the redemptive work of Christ. The second part of this verse is critical to the understanding of the faithfulness of Jesus going willingly to the cross for our sins. The verse says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. It'd be easy to think, as many parents in this room can attest to, that we would joyfully take on the suffering and pain of our children or for someone that we love. So it'd be easy to think that Jesus was joy to do so on our behalf. This is simply not the case. The word for in this verse Originally, anti, does not carry on the translation of for the joy as we read it, 
but rather in this case it means in opposite to, instead of, in place of something. It wasn't joy that took Jesus to the cross. It was faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness to God the Father's plan for redemption of our sinfulness and that sin's death. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith because he is God. He was also a faithful man. Even more so, his faithfulness and obedience which humbled him from his rightful throne to hang on that cross for our sins. And this is where we find faith. Faith in not only what Christ has done, but who he is. The author of Hebrews argued that Jesus was a much bigger deal than any of the other religious patriarchs his audience would have been familiar with. In fact, he argues that all the other biblical patriarchs were foreshadowing, appointing to, all pointing to Christ. Jesus is the perfect priest, the prophet, the king, the sacrifice, and the revelation of God the Father. In other words, without Jesus, faith amounts to nothing. Faith depends entirely upon Christ. If faith then is dependent on Jesus, then let's answer this question. How do we develop faith? So earlier, we're going to continue breaking down these two verses. The first thing the author tells us is that we should shake off whatever trips up our faith. In the previous chapter of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the author gives a rundown, a list of faithful believers from the Old Testament and briefly describe what God accomplished through their faith. He said those people who ran well in their lifetime now surround us like a cheering crowd as we run too. Here's the thing about those believers though. They all face significant obstacles that had to be overcome or cast off like restricting garments so that they could run well. Some had to overcome fear. Many were treated as outcasts. Others turned down vast wealth and power to do what God had called them to do. They weren't any smarter, craftier, or more special than us. They just had faith in God and were led through that faith. If you've ever been tangled up in something in your life, you know how frustrating it can be. And I know sometimes, most times, all of us can relate. We get so busy living life and not paying attention to the path of discipleship God has called us to that before we know it, we are so tangled up with stuff that we can't move. We can't respond. The author also warns us about sin by describing it as something that easily clings to us. We all have sins that we struggle with, and they can most definitely get in the way. We know those sins that when we're tired and we're frustrated and overwhelmed and beat down, that we continually turn back towards. So, what do we do about it? We First, we have to pray and reflect. Asking God and ask yourself, what keeps me from having a vibrant faith? You can also think about it this way. If God called you to step out in faith tomorrow, what would keep you from doing it? Whatever you identified in those two questions are things most likely to trip you up. Are you too busy? Work on prioritizing God first. Are you crippled by fear or the approval of others? Ask God for courage and make yourself a little uncomfortable every day. Is sin causing you to feel dirty, guilty, and useless? Ask for forgiveness and seek accountability from the community around you. The point is not that we should be perfect but that we should never give in to complacency when God desires us to play an important role in building his kingdom. Building an enduring faith in Jesus means that we must stay on the path of faith as well. 
the author of Hebrews, still using this race analogy, says believers should run with endurance the race that is set before them. There are three pieces to this statement we need to look at to further understand this idea. First, the runner must step up to the starting line and begin the race. Faith is nothing without a personal relationship with Jesus. And just like any relationship, it must have a starting point. Second, the author describes the way the race has to be run, which is with endurance. This isn't a passive endurance, but one that is active and involves effort and real struggle. We know that the Christian life isn't easy and involves extraordinary effort. And sometimes, most of the time, we struggle with many things. Third, the author tells the reader to stay on the course which has been set. The first century believer understandably would have faced a lot of pressure to walk away from their faith, both spiritually and physically. There were many false teachers who would pull away early Christians from the truth. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy warns Timothy about these false teachers who told people what they wanted to hear instead of the truth, like an appealing lie mixed in with the truth of the gospel. Jesus said these false teachers were like wolves dressed as sheep. Christians need to walk the path which is set by God. And that path is found in scripture, which is without error and is a special gift to his people. The author urged believers to fight with enduring effort against all that seeks to pull them off of his path. God is truth, and so his word is also truth. This is different from contemporary culture tells you, which is live your truth. As believers, we know that God is the author of truth. That is not relative to us or our situation, but to what he brings into reality. He knows all things that have happened, all that is happening, all that will happen. So we worship and follow a God who is bigger than we can even imagine. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving. And scripture tells us that, in fact, he never changes. Wouldn't we think that the path he has set for us is worth pursuing? Do we really think... We can come up with a better option, yet that's how we live. We're told to trust your instincts, follow your heart, look inside yourself. You do you, be you, live your best life. All that matters is I'm a good person by just about every source of media and society. Yet we know that scripture says because of sin, we can't be really what we're called to be, which is a reflection of God. We see that the heart is deceitful and our instincts and feelings can and usually are wrong and sin taints our decision-making process. The Bible says without Jesus, we are dead. We must be honest. If our path to follow what lies at the center of who we are is apart from Christ, that's a dark place we do not want to follow. Our society denies that there's a true path can even exist outside of ourselves. So we will always feel the pull towards selfishness and meaninglessness, but we must stay on the path set before us by God. Allow his word to illuminate it for each and every day. Seek out those who want to discover and walk that path too, and keep each other on it by giving accountability. One thing we have to be clear on is not to walk walk away from today with a checklist of things you have to do. We approach our faith or spiritual discipline as a checklist, We will inevitably fail to do these things. Then, of course, comes the guilt, and we're worse off than before. And it completely erases God's grace. That's not the point. 
The point isn't try harder, do better, or be a better person. The point of this is to point to Christ. Look to him. He is all we must have faith in, not ourselves. Have faith in the only truth, Jesus. The third thing the author says is to keep focused on the object of our faith. Without Jesus, try as we may, we won't be able to shake off whatever is tripping us up in our faith. And we surely won't be able to stay on God's path. The reason is that without Jesus, we wouldn't have faith to begin with. Instead of trying harder and doing better, just follow Christ. The author tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. It's a literal translation. It's not a quick glance or an awkward side eye or a gaze to course correct. It's a continual focus on the champion of faith himself. Why? Because Jesus has already run the race, and he ran it really well. In fact, he perfected it. No one can do it better. Remember the cloud of witnesses or the faithful who the author of Hebrews says we are surrounded by? They ran well, but they didn't run perfectly. Abraham was a coward. Moses was a murderer. David murdered, was a terrible parent, and an adulterer. They weren't perfect, just as we are not perfect. The author points to Jesus as being both the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the original trailblazing champion that shows what a perfect runner looks like. All we must do is walk as his disciples. The call isn't to be perfect, but to trust him and walk as he did. We have to keep our focus on him, his commandments, his teaching. Sometimes admittedly focusing is difficult. As my lovely wife will attest to, she's asking me important questions and many times my mind is somewhere else. Inevitably, she'll ask me, when I do give an answer, she'll inevitably say with a surprised look in her face, what do you think I just asked you? The answer I give here has nothing to do with the question because of course I wasn't focused on it. I always focused on other things. And we do this all the time. We continually lose focus every day. So although focusing is difficult, it has its advantages. If we're going to live like Christ, to be his disciples, we have to focus our lives on Jesus. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews calls us to emulate. He says of Jesus, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Being executed on a cross is not only extremely painful. It was designed to shame the person who endured it. The author of Hebrews said that Jesus despised the shame, as he should have. When our sin nailed him to the cross, Jesus took that willingly on our behalf. The perfect Son of God died after being humiliated and shamed as a heretic. He did that for you and I because of faithfulness and obedience. That's the type of path we are called to emulate. Imagine what kind of world we would live in if Christians fixed their eyes on Jesus and walked like he did every day. So how do I find, develop, and hone an enduring faith? Turn your eyes to Jesus. Trust him and walk with him all the days of your life. And here's the funny thing. Jesus has done all the hard work for us. He calls us to follow him on that path of faith. The longer we walk with him, the easier it is to untangle ourselves from the things that trip us up because we have perspective. The longer we walk with him, the more we grow to love his path and not our own. Why is this? To be faithful, we have to learn to trust and rely on God's grace and mercy despite our weaknesses. 
the more we love God, the easier it is to give things up that used to ensnare us and to trip us up. God wants to have a relationship with you, to set you free from everything that has you so tangled up and feeling lost. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is holding you up today to run the race of faith we are called to live? Amen.